Hey, it's just me today. I thought as a part of the pledge drive that we're going to be doing here in January that I would do daily episodes in which I just talk off the top of my head and you know, just short daily episodes. So again, please become a patron if you haven't already by going to patreon.com. According to internet, you know, sound internet statistics, there are tens of thousands of you, and so far we have about 160 patrons, which is great. 160 is fantastic, but if only a small, small percentage of you became additional patrons, we could take this podcast to the next level. As we gain more patrons, I tend to put more effort into the podcast. I think you can notice. I think you might notice that lately. For instance, I used to do sort of half-assed episodes every week, and now I do uh, several episodes every week, uh, often. And many of the episodes I put a tremendous amount of effort into, meaning you know, 40 hours of my time. Because in order to provide quality content, it really takes uh, often a lot of um, prep. But anyway, so please become a patron. All right, this is the psychology of... Psychology of Seattle, Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch Seattle, and I'm also a licensed psychotherapist. Okay, so I thought I would read a question or just a comment from a supervisee of mine. She said, uh, this was a while back, I I have a worksheet that they fill out, and so uh, here we go. The supervisee, uh, who I will uh, remain anonymous uh, for her sake, uh, she says that she had a family session, and she was talking uh, about, uh, let's see, scanning, I'll see, I'll summarize. Okay, so basically what happened was, on this worksheet, I asked people to discuss a moment of counter-transference that they had recently, and she said that she had a family session, and the family started talking about the uh, parents fighting, meaning the parents, you know, the, the, the mother and the father were in conflict. Uh, they were talking about a story. So the family's in session, and one of the children is like, yeah, my mom and my dad were fighting, and it was really uh, horrible, da-da-da. And because of the history of this therapist, this triggered countertransference in her, and it caused her brain to freeze up, she said. And then she was unable to really address anything uh, new in that session because she had been triggered and she had to contemplate it, get supervision, get consultation, and and then come back uh, to the issues in the next session. So this is a very wise thing for this therapist to, to write and to notice about herself we all have our issues in our past, and they will undoubtedly get triggered many times by our clients because so much uh, uh, of our lives overlap with our clients' lives. And so she's wise to have noticed this. Often with novice therapists, and I would say even with experienced therapists, when this happens, there's a lot of shame as a therapist. You think, well, I should be able to handle it. What's wrong with me? I should be over this. The fact of the matter is, is none of us are over our issues, and all of us will be triggered from time to time regarding our counter transference. And 
we will all have difficulty noticing it at the time. We'll all have difficulty managing it at the time. And we're going to make mistakes, and that's natural. We're not gods. We're not, uh, we're not superhuman. We are human beings, and we have emotions, and we have issues. And sometimes treatment will suffer, as it sort of did. She's not uh, saying that directly, but she's saying that her brain froze. And, you know, ob- you know I'm imagining that your uh, quality as a therapist is going to dip if your brain is frozen. But that's okay. It's completely normal, and it's fine. And so I commend her for saying that. Okay, so I have another question here from a supervisee saying, and actually this is just a preamble to the question that she asked that I'm going to address. She says that she had her first client that she did not diagnose with GAD or generalized anxiety disorder. Um, If you're not in the business, you probably don't know this, and if you are, then you might know this. But um, how do I explain this in a short way? Basically, in order for health insurance to pay for services, and basically in order for clients to be able to afford services since they're expensive, there, there has to be what they call a medically necessary diagnosis. You know, when you go to your doctor and they, your, your physician, and they provide a treatment, there has to be a diagnosis to justify the treatment. The physician can't just administer a treatment to you without some form of diagnosis. Well, it's the same when it comes to mental health and behavioral health issues. There has to be a diagnosis. There has to be a justification for the insurance or for the government in terms of Medicaid to pay for treatment. And so you need a diagnosis. There, there needs to be a reason, and it needs to be necessary. And so... In the DSM-5, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, there are a a wide swath, hundreds of diagnoses that we as clinicians and intake people and assessors can choose from to justify treatment. And the thing is, is that there are certain disorders that over time clinicians tend to gravitate toward because they are easily endorsed. They are easily applied to many, many clients. So obviously if someone comes in with full-blown schizophrenia or full-blown bipolar or full, full-blown major depressive disorder, then it's not hard to diagnose them, it's not hard to detect them, and it's not hard to justify treatment. However, in often there's a wide i don't even know the stats I, I from my personal experience it's 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 in in my field it's probably like 95% of clients do not fit very succinctly or easily or obviously into a diagnostic category and you know they come in and and they're they're kind of depressed they're kind of anxious they're kind of stressed they have a lot of issues going on in their life in their family at school in their relationships, in their parenting, and with money at, at their job and at their health. And it's hard to figure out what diag- diagnosis to apply to them. They don't fit criteria for any of the classic disorders like major depression or any of the psychotic disorders or, or anything along those lines. And so it's, 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 it's hard to fit them into a category. But Unless you, as a clinician, diagnose them, then you can't help them 
even though they are desperate for your help. And so what happens is you'll have clinicians searching for a diagnosis that that fits their client. And what a lot of, uh, and it, when I was younger in, in the 90s, the diagnosis that people would go to was what they called adjustment disorders. And these are uh, uh, a, a somewhat unknown diagnostic category that uh, applies to a lot of people. It, it, it applies to a lot of people coming into therapy. The, the summary I could say is uh, you have someone, they don't have any symptoms, and then they experience some sort of stressor, like they move or they lose a job or they have a health problem or a breakup in their relationship or something, some kind of stress in their life, some kind of event that's stressful to them. And then after that, they have symptoms. They have anxiety symptoms or depression symptoms or conduct, conduct issues. But these issues are subclinical in that they're, they don't meet the criteria for depression or an anxiety disorder or some other issue. So they have a, stress and then a stressor, and then they have mild symptoms afterwards. And that, this is what they call an adjustment disorder. And that's a very brief, uh, in a nutshell, summary of the, of the diagnosis. So you can imagine that a lot of people would fit that, those criteria. And so in, when I was uh, an intern and starting out as a therapist, uh, I looked around me, and a lot of the clinicians around me were, were applying adjustment disorders to a lot of their clients. Well... Over the years, uh, I think what happened was Medicaid, so this is all a lot of just me basing this on my own experience. I'm not exactly sure if this is correct, but I do know this, is that eventually Medicaid, the government uh, medical insurance, decided to uh, excise adjustment disorders from their list of acceptable diagnoses that they would pay for. And so in order for people and agencies to get their clients' treatment, they could no longer diagnose them with adjustment disorders because that was no, that was, that was, it was one of the diagnoses in the DSM that Medicaid did not pay for. Other insurance companies would pay for it, like private insurance, like Blue Cross, Blue Shield, these people, but not, but not the government uh, insurance. And the agencies primarily serve people that are using government uh, insurance and mental health insurance. And so, so all these clinicians at these agencies had to switch to a different catch-all diagnosis, diagnosis. And what apparently what they landed on was generalized anxiety disorder. And what I started hearing from my supervisees is I, I even had one supervisee once say to me, well, I can always, I can always, di- I can always diagnose them with generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD is it's it's such a frequently used diagnosis in in my world that they they just say GAD or GAD. And so, so I was talking with her, and she said, "Well, I can I can always apply GAD." And I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What do you mean you can always apply GAD? Because it's illegal and it's unethical." to diagnose someone with an illegitimate diagnosis. It's fraud, it's uh, stealing, it's lying, it's, it's no good, people. And it's, you can get in trouble for it, uh, and you should get in trouble for it. So, so just to say that you can apply GAD to anybody is, uh, is unethical, bad practice, and lying. And what I tell people is, 
you know, find a legitimate diagnosis by all means because we want to be able to help people. But if someone doesn't qualify for a legitimate diagnosis, then you can't diagnose them. And there are other avenues for people to get help. If they don't have a diagnosis, then to some extent by, di- by definition, they don't really need your help that badly. And they could find help from, say, a, a non-clinician. So say, for instance, someone comes in and they're, they're stressed out about their life, uh, but they're not extremely stressed out, and they don't fit any diagnosis. Well, they could benefit from therapy, but they could also benefit by talking to their minister, talking to their teacher, talking to their mentor, talking to a friend, or talking to other people, or doing some self-help. There's a lot of avenues to getting help that don't involve utilizing the mental health system, which is quite expensive. Now, having said that, (laughs) if I had it my way, everyone could have free therapy all the time because I think therapy is a wonderful thing and and helps a lot of people that have diagnoses and a lot of people that don't have diagnoses. For instance, myself, I've sought therapy before and have not met any criteria and therefore pay out of pocket. Now, I can afford that, so you know, that's something to think about. But anyway, so, so this, uh, this supervisee is writing, I have my first client that I did not diagnose with generalized anxiety disorder. <laughs> and it's just like, what? Uh, your first client? Like, according to statistics, really, uh, if, you, know, uh, you shouldn't be diagnosing many of your clients with GAD. There should, only, there should be a small percentage of people that qualify for the diagnosis because it's a very specific diagnosis. That's the other thing. I think there's this massive misunderstanding of what generalized anxiety disorder is because generalized anxiety disorder isn't actually, that, isn't actually that common. For instance, according to statistics, the 12-month prevalence of generalized anxiety disorder is 0.9% among adolescents and 2.9% among adults in the general community. So in other words, somewhere between 1% and 3% of people in the United States at any given time have generalized anxiety disorder. So uh, it's, it's, you know, it's fairly rare. It's on the level of like schizophrenia or something. It's, it's a fairly rare disorder. Because it's, it's quite specific. There are several other anxiety disorders. There's specific phobias. There's, there's uh, you know, OCD. And let's see, there's agoraphobia. You know, social anxiety. There's a lot of different anxiety disorders. So generalized anxiety disorder is just one of those disorders. And again, it's, it's, quite, it's quite specific in its presentation. And, and to think that it could apply to just anybody is... is, is uh, uh, irresponsible and silly, uh, and I think part of the problem is that the the description in the DSM of GAD is is so broad that it it could easily be applied to a lot of people if you don't understand what the anxiety what the disorder is. So, for instance, some of the uh, symptoms are restlessness. So how many people feel restless? There's a, you know, restlessness is, is a common thing. You know, if, if you ask someone, do you feel restless? A lot of people say, yeah, I, I guess I do. Uh, being easily fatigued. 
being easily tired. <laughs> I mean, again, ask Americans, uh, uh, do you feel tired right now? Uh, the vast majority say yes, but that's not because of generalized anxiety disorder. It's because of a lot of other issues. Another, uh, another symptom here, difficulty concentrating. How many people have difficulty concentrating? We're talking a lot of people. Okay, irritability. How many, how many irritable people are there around? <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of, of irritable people. Uh, muscle tension. Again, lots of reasons you could you know, uh, have regarding muscle tension. And then sleep disturbance. Again, there's a, most Americans are, are suffering from sleep deprivation and therefore have sleep uh, disturbances often. So th- these criteria are so so broad and really off the mark in, 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 my, in my mind. Now, you know, a main criteria is the individual f- finds it difficult to control how much they worry, and they worry a lot. But again, if you ask the average American, do you worry about things? Most people are going to say, yeah, I do worry about things. But the difference is, is that if you understand generalized anxiety disorder, if you understand the difference between excessive worry and regular worry, you'd be able to assess that in your clients and therefore eliminate a lot of clients from, uh, from qualifying for generalized anxiety disorder. Because generalized anxiety disorder is extreme. Yes, you worry often, and most of us worry often. But generalized anxiety disordered people, their worry is pretty much constant, and it's extreme, and it interferes with a lot of things. It's not just like, oh, I've been worried about this deadline, or oh, I've, I've been worried about my marriage. No, they, they worry about everything. <laughs> they worry about death. They worry about their family. They worry about money. They worry about their job. They worry about their, you know, uh, the weather. They worry about their place burning down. They worry about whether or not they're going to make it home on time. And, and, and it's extreme worry. If you heard someone with generalized anxiety disorder talk about their worries, you would say, holy crap, you have a disorder. <laughs> you know, you would, you would say, that sounds extreme. You know, there's something very different about your worry as opposed to my worry, which is non-generalized anxiety disorder kind of worry. Okay, people, if you're still listening, please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. We just had a new patron of the podcast. Her name is Lynn with one N. Lynn with one N. Thank you for becoming a patron of the podcast. We love you so, so much. We're trying to get up to about three or 400 patrons, and we are now at 162. So please keep becoming patrons so we can start paying our co-hosts because they deserve it. And you should take care of yourself also because you deserve it.